and someone I didn't know named <laughs> Sylvia was doing a day long. And I remember it was the 31st because we came back from walking meditation and there was a piece of candy on each of our cushions. Yes. Yes. Maybe you wouldn't do that today. No, I would. Oh, well, I mean, not you, but one because of, you know, dietary considerations. (laughs) It'd be wrapped now. Yes. (laughs) Right. So, but you didn't know me then. We really... No, but we met after that. Yeah, we met <clears throat> and <throat> we became close after I got sick in yeah. 2001. Um, by that time, you were close uh, to my husband, Tony, who some of you know, he's back there. Tony? Okay. <laughs> improbably, they are, in fact, Tony and yeah. Tony. Um, For almost 50 years together. Oh. <laughs> and they met in university or law school? University. In Tony's university. not been to law school. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So they met in university, Tony and Tony, and they've been together yeah. since. We got married when we were 20. Yeah, I believe. Um and secretly lived together a couple years before then. That was back when you, it, you had to do it in secret, or you could get arrested. <laughs> I remember that. I remember yeah. that. That's so archaic, you know, people think we're from before the flood. You know? I know. <laughs> yeah. Which we are. But anyway, uh, and then we met, and two years ago, three, five years ago, how long ago did you write How to Be Sick? Well, it was published three years ago exactly. Okay. So that's the last time I came to Spirit Rock was to be with you again on Wednesday morning. Right. Yeah. And somebody said in the sharing this morning when we were sharing who was on our mind, somebody talked about the numbers of people who have um, a chronic fatigue. Mm-hmm. And I think you told me, pursuant to that book being published, that something like 90 million people have an ongoing uh Chronic, chronic problem. All right, some kind of chronic illness, which you know can range from something that uh, many people still hold down jobs and work around it, find often secret ways of accommodating. Any of you who've read my first book, How to Be Sick, you are aware of some of the secret ways that I accommodated during the period when I tried to continue working, I was a teacher at UC Davis School of Law. And um, ranging from that to, uh, you know, people with terminal illnesses who are confined to bed completely, um, there's a range, but we're pretty much not aware of it because I, I probably look fine to everybody. But... I dragged myself out of bed this morning, and that's where I'll be going afterward. Not that I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Don't mistake that. But now, and I, th- I think it's fair to say, I'm going to let you talk yeah. about your book, but I think one of the things I want to say is that it seemed so natural for you to write How to Be Sick at the time mm-hmm. uh, uh, and to teach it through the lens of what the Buddha taught or to teach what the Buddha taught through the lens of how to be sick. Uh, because in a certain sense, we share with... Some of us have autoimmune diseases and some of us do not, but we all have life. Right. And so we all have disappointments and we all have 
I would have wanted other, but this is what I've got. Uh, as a, a, you know, if not in some grand and big way, in many small ways. And I think it, it's another way of saying what the Buddha taught is how in this life inevitably filled with disappointments, you know what, I don't have a thing. That's no, what I'm talking No, you don't. And I, th- I thought it was on purpose, and I thought, shouldn't Sylvia be Yeah, right? I should. Good. Let's see if it works. <laughs> Otherwise, I, these kind of things. I sound no. so dominant. This means I can't talk too long, so I'm, I'm going to give it no. to you. <laughs> but in, in fact, We're, what the Buddha said is we all have that ongoing disease called life, uh-huh. which, yeah. is, which is a, a fatal disease, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it requires... It requires ongoing attention not to have it be fatal before it runs its natural course. And uh, different parts of us seem to stop working. For some people, their pancreas stops working all of a sudden and they have to take insulin. Other people, their heart stops working after a while and they have to have a pacemaker. And we have all kinds of ways that one or another things can use up and not work anymore. And we keep on going. And there's a way in which, Tony, I've been thinking about uh, what, what the, the, the ongoing maneuver that the mind has to do uh, from the beginning to the end is learn to accommodate to right. the new normal. That accommodation is the, not resignation, but <laughs> right. wise Because resignation carries aversion with it. Yeah. Uh, the don't want side of uh, desire, Tana. And, but you have a wonderful metaphor for that where you talk about the GPS system having to reset. Well, I don't know if you you've shared it? this. Teach the GPS. <laughs> what? Teach the GPS I haven't uh, oh. talked about in a while. <laughs> oh, just that uh, when you... Uh, well, I, I might not... Uh, how if you don't take the turn that's expected, then it has to recalculate and it puts you back on course the best it can, and then it's, it's constantly recalculating and putting you back on the course of life. And, and so um, that's certainly what I've had to do with this illness the last 12 and a half years, which keeps me mostly in my, on the bed. I venture out uh, for a couple hours here and there, depending on how I'm doing. But uh, when I tried to not to ignore the GPS by continue working, for example, I just got worse and worse. And part of the reason that I was ignoring the GPS is that it's very easy to be in denial about what's happening in your life, whether it's physical difficulties or... Uh, mental difficulties, stress over various things, relationships, um, um, responsibilities to children or or parents. And um, when we ignore what's going on, instead of trying to work with it and find some way back to, I'm always thinking in terms of coming back to equanimity when I can, it just it adds an, another layer of suffering to the difficulties that we're already encountering. So I hope I got your GPS oh, metaphor that's great. correct. That's great. So I'll tell you where, where I want to start with you. Sure. I didn't prepare a talk because no, I thought did. we you would 
you just said actually the yeah. uh, a very important piece yeah. that is starting from equanimity mm. and coming back to it. And equanimity is another way of saying accommodating. You know, this is what's right. going on. This is the truth of what is. So first, of all, I want to tell you how much I uh, when I was rereading this book yesterday, I noticed how many times you said Tony in this book puts out certain hypotheses or theses about this is this is what I've discovered makes the mind happy, this makes it less happy. And then she suggests different practices that you might do. And often when you read a when I read a Dharma book, it says now do this and it tells you instructions for what to practice. Think this way, think that way, do the other. And every time you you invite people to do a practice, you actually invite them and you use the same words. You say, I hope you'll practice rejoicing for others. Mm -hmm. I hope you'll practice mm -hmm. thinking it over. I hope you'll practice this and that. And I didn't realize it on the first read-through, but yesterday, when I read it mm -hmm. all the way through again, I thought, each time you say, I hope you'll practice, <laughs> and it's so kind. Yeah. Never oh. says do it. It says, I hope you'll try yeah. this. So I was going to say about your book, it's incredibly friendly. It's oh, <laughs> thank you. Did you do that purposely? No, I think I, I say I hope, and then sometimes I say I encourage. I think um, I didn't do it purpose on purpose, but I did it out of a recognition that there may be some practices that just don't resonate with a reader. So they may get to something and say, well... You know, I don't, that just doesn't resonate with me. I don't think that would be helpful. And so that's why I found I didn't want to say, do this, do that. I want people to find, find what works for them. So that was not on purpose, but... Um, it might be just because you're a nice person. You know, well, I hope, I, hope, <laughs> I hope so, <laughs> using that word hope again. Uh, it's just the way... Um, you know, I do get feedback on this book. I'm starting to get feedback and on the first book saying that people say they feel as if um, they're in the room with me, that we're in a conversation. And that just turned out to be, I, I guess writers use this term, uh, my voice. <laughs> a voice I didn't know I had five years ago because I wasn't really a writer then, not in this sense anyway. Um, but that turns out to be the way I write, as if I'm in, conver in a conversation with people. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about this book is that uh, you, sound like, uh, you sound like you're in conversation, and you use so much of your, maybe exclusively, your own thoughts and I have found, maybe it's because I do that, so I like that kind of mm -hmm. writing. But I find it more helpful to have a book that doesn't tell me other person's experience other than the person who's writing the book. Says, when I think oh, to myself, yeah. when Tony goes off to spend a weekend with our grandchildren and I can't go, I think to myself, first of all, I'm happy that he went. And then pretty soon, I think I feel bad that I'm not there and it's not fair and da da da, -da and all these other kinds of thoughts. And how hard it is. And after all, you do hope that he'll have a good time. So it's not hoping he'll have a bad time. But honestly saying, you know, the thing is, in these positions, you get to have envy. And uh, being kind to yourself for having, with having envy. 
you know, I was in a way forced to use my own experience, although there are places where I do talk about, you'll find several, uh, whenever I use a practice, I always illustrate it. And sometimes it will say, my friend Judy, you know. But uh, I'm not a Dharma teacher, and I'm not a therapist, as so many Dharma teachers are. And I've noticed in the many Dharma books I have, maybe my voice is similar to yours, Sylvia, because in so many Dharma books I have, the examples start with my client, Diane, or my student, Joe. And I don't have that. I, I pretty much, and especially the last 12 and a half years, I just have me. I have Tony and a couple friends, but um, I pretty much just have me. And so I did have to look, because I always want to illustrate a practice with an example. That To me, that's what makes it come alive and uh, makes it practicable. Um, and, and so I, I actually complained to my editor one day about that. I said, well, I have this book. I don't remember whose book it was. It may have been Tara Brosh's. I said, she says, my client so-and-so or my student so I said, all I've got is my own life. And he, he actually happens to be a Zen teacher in Boston. And he said, yep. <laughs> Which I thought was very Zen. <laughs> and that was the end of that complaint on my part. Well, you know what I like over here? Where you're talking about... Um, uh, inner critic, and you say, when my health didn't return after the viral infection in 2001, I became my own harshest critic. Before I got sick, I made my living in a lecture hall. Now I was the captive audience and the recipient of the most mean-spirited lectures in which I, I ordered myself around in the second person. By the way, I'm yeah. reading on page 168, yeah. as if I were a drill sergeant, and here are the lectures. You look like a fool at the law school for not recovering enough to teach. You've ruined your family's life with this stupid illness. You will get up tomorrow not feeling sick. You know, it's, it's not funny, but I laugh at that when I read yeah. it because the mind says, why have you got this stupid illness? Like you purposely got it. You know, that that is the way I talk to myself and, and with the you. Yeah. 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 I ordered myself to get better didn't work and and I thought I was ruining the lives of those around me but they never indicated that I mean my children were wonderful they just took me as they they just take me as I am Um, they don't even particularly treat me as sick and so I've actually learned that our relationship is better if I don't talk about the illness that much. Um, it's Tony that gets, <laughs> Tony gets the details. But, um, and I had the same thing where I was embarrassed. That's another thing that often happens with people with chronic illness. There's this sense of embarrassment. Um, and um, I, I felt embarrassed at work that what are people thinking of me? Because who gets... Who gets sick and doesn't get better? It wasn't in my universe. Well, all I had to do was write the first book and get literally thousands of emails. Because my, my daughter made me a website and it includes a 
contact form. <laughs> and uh, thousands of emails from around the world from people with chronic illnesses who've had similar experiences than I have, th- that I have with looking okay and feelings of guilt and embarrassment and wanting to hide it and then the consequences of hiding it are that you don't take proper care of yourself. You stay too long at events and you go to work when you shouldn't and then you just get worse and then there's the self-recrimination. When will I learn to have to pay attention to my body? And it's what you're doing is just adding layers of suffering. Which is why my starting point is always self-compassion. Why not? <laughs> you know, um, is, there, is there any reason not to treat yourself kindly? No matter what, even if you look back and say, well, I, I could have been kinder yesterday in speaking to so-and-so. Well, fine. Now you've learned that. But uh, so I always start with self-compassion because that opens my heart not just to myself but to but to others. It's what you were saying before the break uh, about how um, we don't have to have the exact same experiences, difficulties in our lives to understand uh, other people's difficulties or or to understand the 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 mental pain that can go along with being human beings at times um so yes this is the way i talk to myself and sylvia was very helpful to me um i i think this is in the first book not this one where i uh, talk about how you said to me on the phone one day your body is sick. Your mind is not sick. Your body is sick. And at first it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Because I was so uh, still angry and in denial. But it slowly sunk in. And I realized that I wasn't, all I was doing was hitting my head against the wall to keep ordering myself around. And this is true with any difficulty you're facing. Really what the, what the new book does is expand beyond illness, partly because of those thousands of emails that I said I got from people who were asking me about all of life's difficulties. And so that's what made me want to expand beyond just illness, even though sometimes the examples in the book come from illness because remember what my editor said. You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but also from, uh, I, I remember my, I'm not too old, <laughs> to, I remember my pre-illness life too, so um, there are examples from there too. But I'm, I'm thinking yeah. though that uh, all through the book, and this one is Fundamental Dharma, and mm-hmm. uh, you, I'm looking now on page 70, but I could have looked on any other page and yeah. found that you're saying, um, talking about worry and fear that arise in the mind. And certainly mm-hmm. when you get sick, you have right away the thought, what if I never get better? What if it mm-hmm. gets worse? What if this? What if that? 
I think there's a whole category. I think you have it somewhere in this book <coughs> of what if thoughts. Right. Uh, what if thoughts. Yeah. And, and uh, I think sometimes when, um, well, it's been my experience, you know, when uh, after I came home last year from Europe and Sigmar had been so sick, I talked to uh, a person who uh, works with uh, post-traumatic stress. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, I, I keep remembering it and I think to myself, what if we hadn't gone to the hospital just that minute? What if the ambulance had, hadn't come on time? What if they were right. understaffed in the middle of the night? And she stopped me and she said, listen, what if didn't happen? And each time that you think what if, you make your mind more agitated. So we have enough trouble with what is, not what if. Right. <laughs> what yeah. if is really an add-in. You know, what if we have a tornado this afternoon right. here, or the roof falls down, or something? So on page uh, seventy, you yeah. said, um, "I the negative judgments in the form of commentary, like can I stop this constant worrying, or I shouldn't feel this way." They're both sort of. Uh, ridiculous judgments. I shouldn't feel this way. Why not? I do feel this way. You know? Right. You know, I, that's a fact. I feel this way. The whole idea of should or shouldn't means you have some conscious choice about it. You get up, should I think of, should I worry today or not? No, bad idea. <laughs> I won't worry. You know? <laughs> well, that's what, that's another example of adding another layer of suffering or unhappiness because Worrying is hard enough without blaming yourself <laughs> for worrying. And so, and, and it, it, what purpose does it serve? Because we can't predict the future anyway. Um, what I talk about in here, the example I give, this is in the chapter on the hindrances. And I say that we each have our area of specialization. And I identify worry as mine. Uh, my worries are around uh, Tony, not my not me, Tony, but him, Tony, and the worry that he will get sick or injured and be hospitalized. and And I've had friends who've had this happen to a loved one, and they well, when Seymour was in the hospital, you were probably at his side most of the day. Yeah. 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 And there's a limit to how long I can sit in a chair. To I could push it to three hours. And so I worry about Tony um, needing me to take care of him and my not being able to do that. That is this recurring worry. And I can't seem to stop it, even as I'm describing it to you, I'm worrying about it. But I've learned, I used to make it worse by getting angry at myself for worrying, because giving myself the lecture, this worry is useless, you can't predict the future, you can't this. And what I've learned to do is treat worry and other painful mental states like that, I treat them as as old guests. And I think I got this from the Buddha. There's some place, I don't know my, I can't cite my suttas, where, oh, well, I, I think it's when he's sitting under the tree and Mara comes and, and he says, I see you. And so it's one of the phrases I use in here as a kind of way of um, greeting 
a mental state that we might, if we had our choice, uh, not be hosting, but the fact is we are hosting it, whether it's anger or worry or fear. Um, And to say, I see you, as if this was an old guest that knocked on the door. I didn't invite I didn't invite you over, but I'm not going to turn. I can't. I'm not going to turn you away. Um, if an old friend knocked on the door, you wouldn't turn the person away. And so, I found that when I take an attitude of friendliness toward mental states that are painful, just that alone eases my pain, my suffering. Just that alone. Because I've taken one thing out of the equation. I've taken the aversion out. and um, So it's very helpful to learn to greet unwanted mental visitors um, with uh, an attitude of friendliness. Uh, you can't... I can't... I don't know about you, but 20 years of... Buddhist practice, I still can't control the thoughts and emotions that pop into my mind. So what I try to do is, what, what maybe this book is about, is figuring out what to do with what pops in there. Because you think about the, the, the instruction that people sometimes give to their children or to somebody else, they say, oh, don't think that way, it's not helpful. If we, you know, don't think that way, it's ridiculous. You don't decide how to think. Now I'll think this way or that way. It happens that yeah. way. And to and to instead have some some sort of a oh poor you know my dear you're thinking that way how painful that is yeah which that that kindness is again that's an act of self compassion you know because, what else I noticed yeah. about your book that it keeps coming back to being grounded in wisdom self compassion mm-hmm. out of wisdom like it says here. Uh, when I investigate what gives rise to worry and fear, I find that it's my do- desire to control the future. That realization loosens their grip because I know with my wisdom mind that controlling the future is impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about, as we was putting our prayer intentions out earlier, that so many of those people who are, maybe all of them, I, you know, I can't remember the second... The people who are in some difficulty at this time probably didn't know two minutes before the difficulty that that was going to happen. You know, somebody goes for a physical and they feel all right, and they say, you know, your blood counts are off. Let's look into that a little bit. And then your life goes a whole different way. Uh, you know, I, I was looking in here, I think, oh, too bad I didn't tell you, you know, about stories about other people. I, have, uh, I knew a woman who got very, very old, and it was in a as in a nursing home, and forgot how to speak. Actually, she she mm-hmm. she she recognized people a little bit, maybe. And she sat in a chair, but she couldn't say anything. And she remembered only two words. And every once in a while, she knew you're supposed to say something. So when people talk to you, so she said her two words, one or the other of her two words, and her two words were unexpectedly and temporarily. And it's like, <laughs> wow. It's like a whole entire life is yeah. unexpectedly and temporarily. Yeah. Everything is yeah. unexpectedly and temporarily. So, the, you know, the, 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 her, her niece was a friend of mine. We used to joke about maybe your great aunt is a sage of some kind <laughs> actually giving information. Right. <laughs> yeah. But everything is unexpected. You didn't expect 
to have yeah. this disease. Yeah, you know, I you read that sentence that had the term wisdom mind in it. Well, that's something that um, I just, I, it may be in other books too, but um, it was just a phrase that I came up with because the book starts with, the first section of the book is called Wisdom. And of course, there's many different ways you could talk about wisdom. You could talk about the Four Noble Truths, this or that. Well, for me, I always, I always go to uh, Dukkha Anicca Anatta. And I think um, impermanence, no, self, no fixed self, and suffering dissatisfaction. Um, and there's this great, you know, it's one, the wonderful uh, Thai teacher, Achan Cha. Um, I don't think you, but Jack spent a lot of time in, yeah, in um, Thailand him. with him. Yeah. And um, there's a place in one of his, not his books, but people would transcribe what he said and put, put it in books, where someone reports he's sort of walking around saying, Dukkha Nichanada, Dukkha Nichanada, I'm so sick of it. (laughs) And I've always, that had, for some reason, a profound effect on me. Because he may be sick of it, but that's obviously what he's continually coming back to. (laughs) And so the first chapter is on impermanence and the, what I call its corollaries, uncertainty and unpredictability. Um, and then there's a chapter on no fixed self, which to me is could be considered another corollary of impermanence. I actually was hoping yeah. you would read from page 20, because um, I, I loved what you wrote about Anatta. It so absolutely oh. normalizes what's otherwise um, a difficult concept starting from when I was a teenager, about having an identity and mm. being, uh, being wedded to your identity or thinking that you're that identity. And, you know, who is Tony Bernhardt anyway? You want to read a so, little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, when I was a teenager, is that what yeah. you're thinking of? I behaved in repeating patterns that society had identified as signs of depression. Quite understandably, this led my family to come up with this abstraction from my behavior. I was a depressed person. As a result, I took on that label and that identity, Tony Bernhard, depressed person. I thought that was who I was. That depressed person was a fixed aspect of my being. But those emotional and behavioral patterns changed as soon as I moved out of the house to go to college. (laughs) Maybe this resonates with a lot of you. (laughs) My mother even sent me to a therapist as a teenager. And it was a terrible experience. So Maybe this is the old way. He just sat there for 50 minutes and he'd say, what are you thinking about? And I'd say, nothing. And then there'd be another 10 minutes of silence. And he'd say, what are you thinking? I wonder what my mother paid for. Um, So um, it did. As soon as I went to college, I was fine. (laughs) So 
Uh, that notion of an intrinsic fixed self, depressed person, turned out to be an illusion. It was just a passing identity based on the repetition of emotional and behavioral patterns in my life at the time. Causes and conditions. Reinforced by you know, the way people treat you and the way you think of yourself. Many years later, my idea of who I was became law professor. As I'd done with depressed person, now law professor became how I identified myself. When I unexpectedly had to stop working due to illness, the identity of law professor followed me from the classroom to the bedroom. Although I was clearly unable to carry out the duties of my profession, I would lie in bed and anxiously think, if I'm not a law professor, who am I? Mm. And, you know, that was part of that inner critic saying, you know, you've got to get back. Um, It took me several years to see that clinging to the identity law professor had become a source of deep sorrow and suffering for me. It was then that I realized that law professor was an abstract idea based on repeating patterns in my experience at the time, going to the same place every day where people called me Professor Bernhard, repeatedly seeing that very label in writing on the nameplate next to my door, my office door, on my faculty mailbox, on written materials, all day long. I was looking, Professor Bernhard, Professor Bernhard. Law professor turned out not to be a fixed self any more than depressed person had been. Both were stories in my mind, abstractions from my experience that I clung to as an intrinsic quality of me. And even though the identity depressed person was one that I didn't like, and the identity law professor was one that I did, in both instances, when I let go of those identities, I felt a great sense of peace and liberation. I'm glad that that showed up there because... To me, it makes it's interesting that I, I liked one of those identities and I didn't like the other one, but they were actually equally sources of suffering because the identities that you like have a lifespan <laughs> and you don't always control when you'll have to give those up. Um, I remember the terrible pain of having to give up the identity of mother with son at home the day he went off to college. Um, That was a terrible, it, it was very, very difficult. And I didn't have the skills to see that this is, was an inevitable part of life and to prepare myself for it as it approached. I just was in denial. And so when it happened, uh, I was just turned on my head with, with misery and grief. And I don't, I can't say for sure, but I don't think that, you know, with, with the wisdom I've gained from the Buddhist teachings, I don't think were that to happen again, um, I think I would handle it more skillfully. I think I think that's the whole thing about this is what's happening. You probably feel sad. You always feel sad. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping you would read the 
just the end of the identity oh. business because oh, I thought you oh. did such a good job on the identity. On page 23, where it starts, I joke with Tony about a test. <laughs> Several people have written to me about this, and the book's only been out a couple weeks. I joke with Tony about a test I've devised for deciding if an identity is worth defining myself by. I ask, does the identity pass my hound dog test? Rusty is our hound dog. I spend a lot of time with my hound dog, Rusty, so I figure he knows the real me. Does he think of me as Buddhist? No. An American? No. A published author? Certainly not. You get the idea. So uh, I thought I thought twice about putting in an American because I thought oh, some people are going to say I am an American, and for that very reason, I put it in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a lot of over the last couple of decades, I think, in various kinds of consciousness raising groups. There have been uh, how many people here have ever been in one in a dyad where they say, "Ask the other person, who are you?" And then you say something. And then they say, thank you very much, who are you? And you think mm. to yourself, idiot, I just told you. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe you don't think that, I think that. Yeah. I know, I, that yeah. test annoys me yeah. so yeah. much. Yeah. Maybe you think it's a great test. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing where people say, who are you? And you do your best, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a right. this, I'm a that. I'm a woman, thank you, who are you? Oh. Oh, that's... <laughs> but I think what it's aimed at yeah. is... You're supposed to end up, you pass that test when you say, I don't know. And it's all oh, good, you made it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to point that you aren't anything. But uh, Yeah, and I, I've, uh, I'm quite content to remain undefined. Uh, I, you know, I have my moments where I am published author, but no, not in any way the way... The, the way I thought of myself as law professor. I see published author as sort of, it's going to come and it's going to go. And the same was true for depressed person and law professor. I just didn't see it. It took a lot of pain to get to that point. You make a very good point that it's very good to know in certain circumstances, like if you go to renew your driver's license, oh, sure. it makes sense to say, I am Tony Bernhardt. Right. And, you know, that, uh, and I also say I'm, gonna, I'm going to be using the word I throughout this book. You know, you've got to communicate. But What's yeah. your favorite part of this book? <laughs> well, my favorite part is the last section on the, the Brahma Viharas which I refer to as the open-hearted states because I try to avoid non-English terms. Uh, So the chapters on uh, meta, which I... I, Actually, my first book, I used the term loving-kindness, but in this book, I use the terms kindness and friendliness. Um... I like friendliness. Perhaps I first heard it from you. Probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Were you here this Sylvia's morning? in here. <laughs> Were you here this morning yeah. when somebody asked about uh, 
it, what does metta? Where did the word loving kindness come from? Does metta mm. really mean loving kindness? Right. And I said it actually means friend. It means friend. It it's comes yes. from the root of friend. Yeah. And, and this, if you know about the Kalyana Mita groups, that Spirit Rock, uh, we have one that's met at our house for I don't know fifteen. 20 years, I don't know, and once a month, um, spiritual friends. Mm-hmm. Well, there's that mita, metta, friends. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have a, a chapter that introduces the Brahma Viharas, and then I have a chapter on each of them separately. And so that's my favorite part of the book because... Um, that's where I hope my mind will will naturally land. <laughs> um, sometimes I have I have to work through things to get there. Um, through difficulties, um, there's actually a chapter in that section on non not judging because judging others and judging ourselves is a, a real obstacle to cultivating these open-hearted states. So um, I have a, a, a favorite section in the book on equanimity in which I talk about, um, it's where I introduce equanimity, so it's actually not in the equanimity chapter, it's in the chapter that introduces them, where I talk about myself as a recovering fixer. And I think that's my favorite part of so the book. So where is it? We'll read it. Okay. Where is it? Because I have page 182 that I wanted you to read about uh, working with envy and resentment, but let's do the well, other one first. Okay, okay. It is on page... After Appreciative Joy, page 141. The fourth sublime state is equanimity. If I read the whole thing, that's about seven minutes, I think. Your choice. All right. Um, cultivating equanimity helps us learn to greet whatever is present in our experience with an evenness of temper so our minds stay balanced and steady in the face of life's ups and downs. This is a tall order, especially because it means engaging our lives with calmness and ease amid both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And I'm going to skip the next part because it refers to something earlier in the book. For me, the greatest challenge in cultivating equanimity has been to let go of my self-appointed role as the fixer. In the movie Michael Clayton, George Clooney plays a fixer. When his law firm makes a mess of a case, it's his job to make the problem go away. As soon as I heard the term fixer, I thought, oh no, that's me, always trying to fix my loved one's lives so they won't have to experience those 10,000 sorrows. When my children were young, I tried to protect them from suffering, as I imagine most parents do. The Buddha's father did. As the story goes, he tried to shield the young Siddhartha from being exposed to any suffering in the world, going so far as to post guards to keep him from leaving the royal grounds. But as a teenager, Siddhartha dared to venture forth, and for the first time was exposed to human suffering. I'm grateful for his courage because that experience set him on the quest to find the answer to why we suffer and how we can find relief from it. 
Like Siddhartha's father, I tried to shield my children from the sorrows of the world. And I thought I could fix all their difficulties. If something wasn't right at school, I was on the phone with the teacher. If there was a conflict with a friend, I was on the phone with the kids' parents. I thought I'd change when they grew up and started households of their own, but I didn't. (laughs) If one of them had a cold, I regaled them with every possible remedy, even though they hadn't asked for advice. With the Buddha's help, I'm a recovering fixer. I've come to understand that this continuous effort to protect my loved ones from the full range of life's experiences is not triggered by their suffering, but by my own. Suffering that stems from my desire to fix their lives so they'll always be happy. Through equanimity practice, I'm learning to let go of this need to shield them from all disappointment and suffering. I'm coming to accept that everyone must be left to experience his or her own life with its ups and downs and its joys and sorrows. To help me with this practice, I silently recite equanimity phrases such as, I love you, but I cannot keep you from experiencing suffering. Your happiness and unhappiness depend on your actions not on my wishes for you. May you live in peace regardless of your circumstances. May you accept with grace both your successes and your disappointments. It goes on, but I'll stop there. That is page 142, the list of phrases which some of you may have Better ones or other ones? Yeah. Uh, wait, wait. Does anybody, does anybody have a question? Because I had one more thing that I now lost the page of working with inner, with uh, transforming the inner. The inner critic? Yes. Yeah. Where you suddenly. <clears throat> because I wanted what, what I thought you talked about so well, or working with envy and resentment here. Oh, yeah. Because I yeah. think this is such an important one. That, it's, it's, it's one of the challenges to wishing people well, you probably know, is if somebody uh, uh, in the area, particularly it's called sympathetic, empathic joy, is most of the time we wish for people to be well and have good fortune, and we rejoice when they do. And uh, the only time that we don't rejoice when they do is when they are having particularly good fortune in some area that we would like also to have the good fortune. Right. And we're not having it. Like, find out that your best friend fell in love with somebody who's fantastic, who loves them back, and their child just got accepted into three great colleges, and their dog just won a dog show. (laughs) Their their 70-year-old father just ran a 10K race. You know, all the things that you wish were happening in your family, and they're not happening... And it's really very hard not to have what? Envy not to feel arise. Yeah. You know, and, and some people, when they teach it, they say, it's hard not to have a thought in your mind. I wish they didn't have quite so much. I don't <laughs> discover that I, I, you know, I don't know. What's yours? I don't discover that I wish they had less. I wish I had more. <laughs> you know, I don't actually think to myself, you know, may they not have this good stuff, but... 
may I also have the same good stuff? Why not? You know. Right. That that happens with me and my inability to travel. It's not that I don't want everyone else to travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to be able to do what they can do. So, yeah. but I thought that this was very good. On the yeah. start to read on the bottom of one eighty two. Try not to judge yourself right. negatively. This is actually in the chapter on Mudita, which has so many different translations. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. Often uh, sympathetic joy, but I don't care for that word sympathetic. I like empathic. So, empathetic joy. In my first book, I just went for joy and the joy of others because I thought, to me, that really describes it. And in this book, I went with a translation that I learned from a, a British scholar appreciative joy because to me it conveys the idea that you're feeling joy in it but all of those they have slightly different feeling tones but so this is um yeah okay try not to judge yourself negatively for feeling envy or resentment by the way i love that you say try not to you don't say don't Mm. judge yourself negatively say try not to judge yourself i just can't (laughs) use those words and i well (laughs) i think it comes from so many years of being unkind to myself don't feel that way feel this way and so when i it's that that place where the drill sergeant that you read when I stopped being my own drill sergeant, I, I, at least I didn't start drill sergeanting everybody else. I think that's where that comes from, okay. that I just don't, it's, uh, yeah. It, so it came out of my healing myself over that, I, I think. So sorry, I butted Okay, try not to judge yourself negatively for feeling envy or resentment. After all, I imagine everyone feels it sometime during his or her life. If you feel judgment start to arise, remember to be compassionate toward yourself, using whatever words speak to your suffering, such as, it's hard to keep envy from arising when I want what she has, but I'm going to work on being happy for her. So again, that theme is that same envy as the guest. Not invited, but the guests nevertheless, so you might as well be friendly. With self-compassion at your side, call to mind the person whom you've chosen to work with. Imagine him or her in the joyful situation that's the source of your envy or your envy and resentment. I talked earlier about the difference between the two. Try to appreciate this person's happiness even a little. If you can't, with your wisdom mind, can I just say, when I use the term wisdom mind, what I'm referring to is the mind that understands those three marks of experience that Achan Chah was saying, no, I'm so sick of them. So that's, that understands the uncertainty of life the, and the dissatisfaction and, and that is driven by... Um, intense and um, harmful desires. So that's what I'm referring to when I talk about the wisdom mind. So let me say that again. Try to appreciate this person's happiness even a little. If you can't, with your wisdom mind, reflect on how envy and resentment are mental states that reflect a desire to have life conform to your liking, but how it's simply impossible 
to always get what you want. Then try again. <laughs> There's a lot of try agains in this yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. Read one uh, more paragraph. All right. This time, silently speak a phrase that directly touches this person's joy, such as, may your new relationship continue to make you happy. May your new job continue to be satisfying to you. May you enjoy your vacation. Speaking phrases like this can help loosen the grip of envy and resentment because the words take us out of our self-focused thinking and open our hearts to another person's experience. Yeah, this reminds me of an instru- a meta-instruction that I either got first from you or Sharon about if you're saying metaphrases, to just, even if they don't feel genuine, do it anyway. And so I found the same true. Just entertaining the thought, may you enjoy your vacation, opens your heart just a little bit to, to the other person's joy and to um, tap, tamping down, if that's the right word, that envy. A bit. You know, to the, yeah. green, to the degree that you can do that, I think actually... Uh, it brings up wisdom. There's a certain way in which the mind gets in my mind, the mind in my mind. My sense is that my mm-hmm. mind ties itself, becomes filled with tension when it really, mm-hmm. when it's filled, when it when it's envious or it's growling, yeah. and that when you think, when when you cause it to think, may you enjoy your vacation, may you have all these things good. It's impossible to bless with. Your mind growling at the same time, right? And so, if you if you yeah. actually do that a little bit, like uh, may you may this work out for you in a in a in the in between in the interstices in between when the mind is not held in the grip of tension, then the wisdom arises that says it's their turn, not mine. That's all. Yeah. This is not nothing personal about this. This is their time. You know, may my time come. Right. Yeah, I think that's why I said the that this is my favorite part of the book, because isn't that true with all these sublime states? That um, they all relax the mind and open the mind, and um, so they're just a wonderful balm for uh, for us. And um, you you can't be completely self-focused and also wishing well to others and reaching out with compassion to them and yeah. um, hoping they enjoy their joy yeah. and that they also, um, if they're recovering fixers, <laughs> that they find some sense of equanimity. I so, think in each case, yeah. as you said before, the wisdom mind manifests itself in the moment mm. that, that, that that salubrious state of the... Uh, addresses the tension in the moment of relaxation, the wisdom manifests. I can't fix it. It's not it's right. out of my hands. Things come and go. <laughs> yeah. All of that. Listen, people come and go because it's 11 o'clock. Yeah. So I want to, while well, people are still here, yeah. thank you so much for coming down. Yeah. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks very much. Uh, come and, uh, if you want to stay and come and say hello to Tony or ask us something, but you can stay a little bit. Yeah, minutes. I can stay. For, I mean, I've come from Davis. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> about buying the book. Oh. Do you 
checks get made out to Spirit Rock? What yes, yes. Oh. They get Spirit Rock Bookstore. You get you make the check out yeah. at Spirit Rock Bookstore. And what's the amount? I don't know. I what don't does know. it say on the book? Is it discounted at all? Or? Yeah. It's what? 20% off. Okay. Is it? Yeah, I so, saw the book lady and she said there was some 20% off and she said be sure to put the check in the box in the, in the uh, bookstore. Yeah, so does it here. Put the check. So does someone have a price <laughs> to quote? Thirteen sixty. If it's three forty off. Thirteen sixty. Okay. Thirteen sixty. That beats Amazon's price. <laughs> or well, yeah. Last time I looked, I think it was more at Amazon. If you buy it and you want it, for, if you yeah. want it signed, bring a pen up and oh, sign it. Yeah, or I have a pen. Uh, otherwise, I will not see you for low a few weeks. I mm. forgot how many weeks. I think two, maybe three. You're not here next week. I don't think I'm. No, but the, I am not Donald. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.